the church is that the outreach that you have is not, it's not limited just to this community or to this county or even to the state. Your influence through your offerings and the things that the church supports extends around the world. I want to show you a quick video and give you a chance to see some things that are happening, and then I want to introduce you to a couple of guests. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Laminda, and this is Denise. Uh, we have uh, two little boys, Levi and Judah. We live in South Asia. We live in an island just off of the coast of India. It's a tropical island. It's predominantly Buddhist, and um, Hinduism is the second most dominant, and Islam and Protestant Christianity is less than 1%. We do holistic uh, ministry and raising leaders in our country here. I think the best way to really reach out to these people it's to know what they believe and why they believe. Um, also, just really make relationship on personal level uh, so that they would see this is not just, you know, some somebody with this foreign religion trying to convert them. God has been doing a lot of really great things um, with us here. And one of the things that we're most excited and we're thankful about is the food pack ministry that we were able to do. We just work with our, our pastors that we work with in our communities and we ask them for the most desperate families that they have. We ask uh, them to find some other desperate uh, families within their community. They could also bring some blessing to their neighbors. So that was really a uh, tangible way of showing God's love and in turn uh, some of them actually started to come to church. Most of the people from the village came to know Christ from yeah. there. Another thing that we're really thankful for that we were able to do this year is we were able to start this new project called the Animal Bank. So we started with these six families and uh, most of them wanted to do chicken raise some chickens, you know, they have some experience before when we gave about 30 chickens each. They each need to bring about 10 chicks to the animal bank. They will then find somebody else in the community uh, so that they can really help them on. We've been spending a lot of our time here introducing this new concept called DBS, Discovery Bible Study. You disciple this handful of people who disciple a handful of people who disciple a handful of people. What the people here are used to is being told what they need to believe. But in this uh, Discovery Bible Study, they have the opportunity of discovering what the Bible says for themselves. COVID has definitely made it a very interesting year with a lot of challenges and hurdles. We definitely need a lot of prayer. As we grow our ministry, we're really looking to, to build our team network. So we're really focusing and really hoping and praying for God to bring us international team members as well as local team members that we can continue to build and continue to expand our ministry in this island. Guys, we have been doing quite a bit this last three years, then it wouldn't be possible without your help and prayers. So we just want to you know, thank you so much for believing in us and believing in this ministry and this country and uh, helping us and supporting us and encouraging us. Please welcome Lamenda and Denise if they come join me for a moment. Who's going to be the lucky one here? <laughs> well, welcome to Ogilvy. You, you didn't know I was going to put you on the spot necessarily, but I'm glad to have you guys up here. Uh, glad to be here. 
we are really excited at the work that you're doing. And, and just real quick, just share with us uh, anything that you want for us to know, and also tell us how love's making a difference there. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, guys. It's, it's, it's our pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. And uh, as you see, we work in uh, Sri Lanka. It's a South Asian little small island uh, south of India. And we are actually, what we do is bring these leaders together and we try to train them and then send them to their own churches. You know? So we believe as missionaries, our duty is not really to lead, but to um, facilitate the leaders and equip them and, and train them and send them back to their own communities. So uh, through those ministries that you have seen, we have been doing some great things. I mean, COVID has been really challenged for us. We would uh, create a moment, momentum and then lockdowns happened. <laughs> so it has been a tough three years, but even through hard times, you know, God uh, really gave us some uh, tangible way to help people and strategies to really connect with those uh, people who are in need. Yeah. Very good. Do you want to share anything, Denise? Um, yeah, I, I just really want to, again, thank you guys so much for your support and for you guys walking. Uh, like Lamindo was saying, the COVID was really difficult, you know, as anybody. I'm, um, one, actually, the encouraging things for us is knowing that we weren't alone, at least, in our suffering. To know that, I guess, in a way, you know, that we're suffering together kind of brings some, some solidarity together. And um, we knew that we were standing together. And I, I think a lot of the results have been similar here as well as in Sri Lanka is when we go through difficult times we start to think about life a little bit more seriously mm -hmm. and so we've been seeing that in Sri Lanka uh, that people are taking religion a little bit more seriously and um, so we're just really excited to see what's going to happen and we we really thank you guys for walking alongside us with all of it it's um, you know because we had COVID I also had dengue fever that it was right before and and that took several months to recover from and just with all of it knowing that we had uh, you know support here who was praying for us and loving us and thinking about us really strengthened us in the, in the times well, we appreciate all the work that you're doing in Sri Lanka, and uh, let me pray real quick for your ministry uh, together. So join me in lifting this up. Father, we thank you so much for the work that Laminda and Denise are doing. We pray, Father, your blessing over the work in Sri Lanka, and I pray that love will continue to break down walls uh, in that place, and that your word and your hope and your light uh, can shine, and that your truth uh, can break through. I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you. And after the service, I encourage you to take a moment and talk with these great missionaries. Thank you. Well, I want to talk a lot about this idea about love breaking down walls today, because I think it's an important concept <clears throat> as we think about this today's sermon, getting it right. So this is a sermon that's, it kind of comes in between. A brand new sermon series starts next week. You'll hear about that at the end of the service. We just finished up a, a really in-depth series about dangerous sermons and uh, a sermon series that I was really, uh, really enjoyed writing and putting together. But as I was thinking about today's message, kind of a, a single sermon, so a thought began to come into my heart and my mind about getting it right, how important it is to just get it right. And by that I mean for the church to get it right. You recall that uh, last week, one of our uh, meditations that Dr. Baxter gave was about an actor who said, I want to portray Jesus the right way. I want to get it right. And I think that's where we are today, right? We, we want to 
get it right. We want to portray Jesus well in our world. The Apostle Paul faced a daunting task. Unlike James, who we looked at last week, who was at the church in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church was filled with people who had been a part of a faith community that followed God for thousands of years. So when James and the early uh, the disciples taught the citizens of Jerusalem, they had a baseline about uh, Yahweh God to build on. But Paul, when he began to reach out to the Gentiles around the world, people who didn't have a faith background in Yahweh, but they had a faith background maybe in Venus or Diana or Zeus or Apollos, they had false gods as their background of faith. Not only that, they lived in cultures that frequently said things that were wrong were right. Things that were completely the contrary of what the Bible says uh, or what God would have us to, to do. And there were, there were cultures and citizens that were engaged in all kinds of things, whether that was drunkenness or debauchery or you could let your imagination wander, but I encourage you not to. They just did a lot of things they shouldn't do. This was especially true in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth had a reputation even in the Roman world. To Corinthianize was to be a, a pretty shady character, right? A person of low morals. And, and, and the idea that was that in Corinth, the kind of the least moral people in the world lived. And this is one of the places that Paul takes the gospel. And he begins to teach them about Jesus. But man, they have a long, long way to go. That's why there are these two letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and also we think even the Romans epistle also was directed in some ways at the church in Corinth. A lot of the New Testament is dedicated to this one group of people that was just wildly off base. And he's trying to teach these folks, how do you get it right? <laughs> You weren't raised to get it right. Getting it right doesn't come naturally, so how are you going to get it right? How are you going to do the things that you're supposed to do? Listen to some of the things that Paul says along the way. In 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says this. He says, I have no praise for you. <laughs> I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, he says, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions among you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, he gives a stinging rebuke of some things that he sees happening there. Listen to what he writes. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. Look out for number one. One remains hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. He goes on to summarize that at the end of this chapter. And in verse 34, he says this. So if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come... I will give further directions. <laughs> Paul says, make sure you get it right, because if you don't get it right, there could be judgment. There could be a problem. You need to get this right. The core problem in Corinth was that individuals 
felt like that their needs, desires, wishes, and wants were more important than someone else's. Now, in some ways, that's exactly the world we live in today. The challenge then for Paul was to try to explain to them what right looks like. And to do that, although he talks a lot about different topics of morality in Corinthians, he says, let me tell you the most excellent way. Let me show you the one thing that you've got to get right. Now, as I go into our text today, I do so understanding that, that this text will be familiar to you. You've heard it many times. And sometimes familiarity kind of gives us a sense of, oh, I've heard that before. And unfortunately, it can cause us to be dismissive of what we're reading or hearing. So I pray the Holy Spirit will open your mind and your ears and your, 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 the, the, the windows to your heart so they can speak to you today in a fresh way. So you can hear these words that Paul was saying to this church because in this church, uh, they had all kinds of problems. They weren't getting it right. And so he says, I want to show you how to get it right. And he says, now I will show you the most excellent way. Now, in that church in Corinth, there were some people who had been given a miraculous gift to speak God's word in other languages. It was a remarkable gift. It was a gift that had been on display on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the apostles had preached that first sermon on Pentecost for the church. And God made a way so that everyone who was there could understand the message. Whether you spoke Greek or Aramaic or some other language, God made a way so that the hearers could understand the words that were being spoken. It was kind of the reversal of the Tower of Babel where speech was confused. God created a way where the speech could be recognized. Sometimes we think of that as tongue speaking, but the, the real idea here was God communicating with everybody. Well, God did that through different people. And so sometimes the people who God did that through thought, I must be really special <laughs> because God's using me. I'm an instrument of God. I must be really special. In fact, I must be more important than someone else. So Paul warns them and he says, listen, if I could do that, but if I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong, only a clanging cymbal. Or if I had the gift of prophecy, sometimes, right, in this period of time, they didn't have the New Testament in front of them yet. It was being assembled. The letters were being written. So again, how did God communicate his truth? Well, on some occasions, he spoke right through a person. They gave a prophetic message from the Lord. And God had done that in Corinth. And there were people in Corinth who God had used in that way who once again said, hey, God delivered the message through me today. I must be really amazing. I'm better than you. Man, Paul's just shaking his head. He can't believe what he's seeing. He says, listen, if I do all that, I'm only a clanging symbol if I don't do it with love. Or if I had the gift of prophecy and I could fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I was smarter in God's word than you were, or if I had faith that could move a mountain, if I had a deeper faith than you had, but I didn't have love, I'm nothing. 
Why, if I gave everything I possessed to the poor, remember that in the early church, this was happening. Remember people like Barnabas and others sold their land, they gave it to the church to help anyone who was poor or in need. And there were people who did that that thought they were pretty special. In fact, remember that story about Ananias and Sapphira, the two people who did the same thing, and well, it didn't turn out so good for them because they wanted to get the attention. They wanted the glory for themselves, not for God. In that case, they wanted to get all the glory and attention and keep a little bit of the profits. It's crazy. Well, Paul says, if I do all those things, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now, I want you to know this was completely upside down to what the Corinthians were about. Uh, the people of Corinth, they had all been about themselves. And now he was saying, you got to flip the script. you got to make it not about you, but about someone else. And that's not easy to do. I love a story that's in the book, Outlive Your Life. It's a story about some people who got this idea correct, making it about someone else instead of about me. Listen to this excerpt from the book. The fans rooted for the competition. The cheerleaders for this game switched their loyalties and cheered for the other team. The coach actually helped his opponent score points. And the parents of the players on one team actually cheered for the players on the other team. <laughs> What's going on? What was this? This was the brainchild of a big-hearted football coach in Grapevine, Texas. Chris Hogan skippers a very successful football program at Faith Christian High School. He has 70 players, 11 coaches, quality equipment, and he has Christian parents who care. They care about their children, their school, and they care about the things Jesus cares about. These parents make banners. They attend pep rallies. And these parents would not miss one of their kids' game, well, for their own funeral. And so it was that this team took their 7-2 record into a contest with Gainesville State School. Gainesville players, by contrast, wear seven-year-old shoulder pads and last decade's helmets. They show up at each game wearing handcuffs. Their parents do not watch them play. But 12 uniformed officers do. That's because Gainesville is a maximum security correctional facility. The school doesn't have a stadium. It doesn't have a cheerleading squad. And it doesn't have half a hope of winning. In fact, for the grapevine game, Gainesville was 0-8. They had only scored two touchdowns all year. The whole situation did not seem fair, so Coach Hogan devised a plan. He asked the fans to step across the field and for one night only to cheer for the other side with as much vigor and energy as they always had cheered for the home team. 
He knew it wouldn't be easy, and he knew not everyone would be on board. But more than 200 people volunteered to cheer for the other team. That group formed a 40-yard spirit line. They painted, Go Tornadoes, on a banner for the Gainesville squad so they could burst through it when they entered the field, something they'd never had the chance to do. They also sat on the Gainesville side of the stadium. And to the players of Gainesville's absolute surprise, this group of 200 people who were getting it right learned the names of the Gainesville players so they could yell for the individual players during the game. Now, these prisoners had heard lots of people scream their names, but never like this. Gerald, who was a lineman who will serve three years in the prison, said, people are a little afraid of us when we come to the games. Uh, You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us like we're criminals. But these people, they were yelling for us by our names. After the game, the teams gathered in the middle of the field to say a prayer. One of the incarcerated players asked to lead it. Coach Hogan agreed, not knowing what to expect. Lord, the boy said, I I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you, but I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. But the Grapevine fans weren't finished. After the game, they waited beside the Gainesville bus to give each player a goodbye gift, a sack of burgers, fries, candy, a soda, and the bottom of each bag, a Bible. Not only this, they each received an encouraging letter that was addressed to each of them individually. And as that bus headed back to the prison from the parking lot, Coach Hogan said those players pressed their stunned faces against the window and they wondered what had just hit them. They understood what Paul was trying to convey. Getting it right means it's not about us. It's about others. Paul would later write in Philippians chapter 2 that your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus who made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. Guess what? He put the need of prisoners ahead of himself. Don't miss this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of, uh, of God. All of us have. We've all sinned. The wage of sin is death. We are imprisoned by our sins. But someone loved us enough to find a way to purchase our freedom. Jesus did that. He was the one cheering for us when everyone else was jeering at us. But Paul's not finished. He wants to go on and explain a little bit more to us about what this getting it right and this love looks like. So he begins to describe it, and as he does so, I want you to understand that these things he says that we should be about if we're going to get it right, they're not easy to do, and as you hear them, some of them may may hurt a little bit. They, They sting. The very first one gets me because the first one says, love is patient, and I know that I'm not the most patient person. Maybe you struggle there. He goes on and he says, love is kind, 
And love does not envy. And love does not boast. And love is not proud. And love is not rude. And love is not self-seeking. And love is not easily angered. This next one blows my mind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's a big one. I, I sat down at a meal not so long ago, and I was sitting with someone who was, I hadn't seen them in several decades, but they were recounting to me a wrong that another person had done to them. Now, this was not a wrong that it wasn't something that was illegal or immoral even. It was a difference of opinion. But they were so angered by what that person had said and done that three decades later, they still told me the story with just as much anger and animosity and vile and vitriol as the day that had happened to them. And this was a person who's a Christian. And I'm sitting there in that moment thinking to myself, love keeps no record of wrong. You see, love has the power to overcome things far worse than someone who offended us with their words. Max Licato tells a story of one of his personal friends. I assume it was a member of his church at one time. The man's name is Buckner Fanning. He experienced what it means for love to keep no record of wrongs firsthand. You see, Fanning was a Marine during World War II. As fate had it for Fanning, he was stationed in Nagasaki, Japan, three weeks after the dropping of the atomic bomb. Can you imagine this? A young American soldier amid the rubble and the wreckage of a demolished city. Radiation burned victims wandered the street. Atomic fallout showered on the city. Bodies burned to a casket black, and survivors shuffling through the streets, searching for family, searching for food, searching for hope. The conquering soldier felt not victory, but grief for the suffering that he saw around him. Yet incredibly, Buckner Fanning reported that instead of anger or revenge, he found an oasis of grace. While carrying out his responsibilities of patrolling the city and the narrow streets, he came upon a sign that bore an English phrase, Methodist Church. He noted the location and resolved to return there the next Sunday morning. And the next Sunday when it came, he entered that building. It was partially collapsed. The windows were shattered. The walls had buckled. The young Marine stepped through rubble, unsure how he would be received to walk into the church. There were 15 or so Japanese men and women who were sitting up chairs and removing debris when the uniformed American entered. Everyone stopped. They turned 
and they looked. Now, incredibly, Buckner said, although his Japanese wasn't very good yet, he heard a word that he knew meant brother. And he was ushered to a seat. He says, they welcomed me as a brother. They welcomed me as a friend. He related the power of the moment still resonating more than 60 years after the events. For they offered him a seat. He opened his Bible because he didn't understand the sermon, but he sat there and he observed. And during communion, the worshipers brought him the elements. And in that quiet moment, the enmity of their nations, the hurt of war was set aside as one Christian served one another, as one Christian loved another through the body and the blood of Jesus. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Friends, the world cannot do that. Only one thing makes a moment like that possible. The Holy Spirit of God indwelling people who are determined above all else to love like Jesus. Paul goes on with these words. Love doesn't delight in evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. And love never fails. It might be familiar, this passage, but that familiarity doesn't necessarily mean that we get these things right. But we need to. The world around us is desperate, is desperate to see the love of Christ, not judgmentalism, which, let's be honest, Christians through the centuries, we've had a problem with that, and not exclusivism. We come and we're a part of our club, but we really don't necessarily want certain types of people to come in. No, that's not getting it right. There's a story that's told, Virgil shared this with me, of a man named Juan Carlos Ortiz, who was a South American preacher, and it's said that he stood up one Sunday to preach the sermon. And his sermon was, was everyone was gathered, they were expecting, you know, a nice 30-minute homily, and he stood up and all he said was, brothers and sisters love one another. And he sat down. Well, the elders didn't quite know what to make of that. The people didn't. They talked amongst themselves. Church was dismissed and they went home. They lived their lives. To their surprise, the next Sunday morning when it was time for the sermon, Ortiz stood up again. He said, brothers and sisters love one another. And he sat back down. This time the murmuring was a little louder and after a very short service, they sang the hymn, and were dismissed and went home. Incredibly, the third Sunday, the people gathered again, and after worship, the preacher stood up to preach, and he said, brothers and sisters, love one another. Now the murmuring was quite loud, and before the service could end, the elders approached him and said, listen, you know, we understand the message, you were trying to make a point, but, but this is getting ridiculous. When are you going to stop doing this and start preaching again? He said, well, brothers and sisters, when we get this one thing right, we'll move on to the next thing. (laughs) 
love, love one another. Love changed the lives of those players at Gainesville. Love left an indelible mark on a soldier in Nagasaki, Japan. Love is making a difference on the people of Sri Lanka. And love is what will make a difference today. People ask about our church. Just happened to get back my thesis. I call it Ogilville Book One. It's the first 23 years of our history, and it's pretty exciting. There's some cool stuff in those 23 years. But you know what? Book two, what happens after COVID is going to be much more exciting. And one of the things that I know that will mark our church for the next 20 years is we are going to do everything we can to get this one thing right. We are going to be a church that is learning how to love people the way that Jesus loves people. Now it's possible you're here today and you have not experienced the overwhelming, grace-filled, life-changing love of Jesus in your life. And you haven't yet accepted him as your Lord and as your Savior. If that's your circumstance, I invite you and I encourage you to come forward to talk with me in the front here so you can make your confession of faith. We can be faithful in Christian baptism and that you can receive fully the love and pardon that Jesus offers. Perhaps you're here and you're already a Christian. If that's your case, then today you had a, a checklist of sorts of areas of your life that you might need to grow in. Maybe there's someone you've been impatient with or you haven't shown love to. Or maybe you looked out for yourself when you should have looked out for someone else. Maybe God's put a person or a name in your mind that you need to pray for. Perhaps you may even need to ask forgiveness from. Would you ask God to give you the strength and the courage to do the thing you need to do so that you can love like Jesus loves? So that you can live like Jesus lives? If you have a decision to make, will you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?